As we come to the Lord's Supper tonight, we come not just to go through the motions of a, an ordinance, uh, some kind of a ritual that was ordained a long time ago, ago that we really don't get. We come because in this ordinance, instituted by our Savior, the Lord Jesus, we come to meet with him. It is called communion. The word communion means fellowship or sharing. We have communion with each other as we partake of one loaf. We have communion with our Savior. And so I trust that as you've come this evening to the table, you come to seek Jesus, as we have just sung. We turn from the world. We turn from all the cares of the world, the burdens of the world. Yes, indeed, the temptations of the world. We come to seek Jesus. But there are others that we read of in Scripture who also came to seek Jesus. And we turn to John chapter 12 this evening, which will be the basis of our meditation in the Word of God to prepare for the supper. John chapter 12, and I want to read verses 12 through 26. On the next day, this is John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, that's the feast of Passover, by the way, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitudes went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you're not doing any good? Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, let's pray and ask that as these Greeks came seeking Jesus, that everyone here in this room, indeed everyone who may be tuning in, for online streaming or who may watch this sermon in days, years to come, would seek Jesus and find him. Let's pray to that end.
Our Father in heaven, we read of these events in the life of our Savior. As we read earlier of his arrest, we read now of his coming in triumph into Jerusalem. We read of the palm branches. We read of the donkey. We read that these things happened as fulfillment of prophecy. But we see a further prophecy fulfilled here that Jesus came to the world to save the world and that he came not merely to redeem the nation of Israel from their sins, but that he came to bring light to those who sit in darkness from all over the earth. We see fulfillment of prophecy in these things tonight. And as these Greeks, not of a Jewish background, not having grown up with the scriptures of the Old Testament, having seen in the truth of the Old Testament the true God, and they came seeking the Savior that was promised. Oh, we ask that everyone here tonight, young and old, would maybe even perhaps for the first time seek and find the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we, your people, come to the table, as we come to have fellowship with our Savior by the means he has appointed, we ask that we too would find special, delightful fellowship with our Savior to the strengthening of our faith and the firming of our desire and resolve to follow him even to the end. We ask through his grace and mercy. Amen. As we look at these, this passage, we're going to focus on the last verses that I read there, verses 20 to 26, about these Greeks, and the, uh, they're seeking Jesus, and then Jesus' response to them. And so we'll break it up into these three sections. First of all, we see the Greeks' uh, lofty quest. They want to see Jesus. And then we see the Savior's surprising conclusion or response. And then thirdly, there is the demands, or there are the demands and rewards of Christ's service, which he proclaims to his disciples. And so first of all, let's start with these Greeks. Verse 20, now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And the, the context of this is that Jesus has now triumphantly entered Jerusalem. He came, they had heard of the raising of Lazarus, chapter 11. They had heard of this man who had been dead, who was raised, and there were eyewitnesses who were there. Those who were there couldn't stop talking about it. This man, Lazarus, was in the tomb for three, more than three days. Uh, he, when they opened the tomb, we expected a stench, but instead of a stench, what came out of the tomb was the dead man walking alive. And people, the, Jerusalem was abuzz with this news. You would have been. If this is real. This is not some myth. This is fact. And there were eyewitnesses that the dead man Lazarus, whom you could have interviewed right then and there, had been raised from the dead. And so the people were thinking, is this, could this be the Messiah who's going to deliver us from Rome? That was, that was their expectation. They thought that, wow, this is not only the certain prophecies being fulfilled, but now we're going to see the king returning to sit on a throne in Jerusalem today, and all of our enemies will bow at our feet. 
They were abuzz with excitement. But the Pharisees were not. The Pharisees are upset. You're not doing any good. We're, we're failures. We wanted to stop this man, but all the more. And the term that God in his sovereign providence over the lips even of his enemies puts in their mouths, don't you see the world has gone after him? The world. That's us. And as I preach tonight, I'm aware that there are people around the world tuning into our service here at Trinity Baptist Church. And this is not the world going after us. It's the world going after Christ. The world has gone after him. The Pharisees couldn't stop it. The Jewish rulers couldn't stop it. Those who arrested him and crucified him couldn't stop it. Indeed, they were tools in God's hands to accomplish it. And we're going to see that. Now, so these Greeks, that's the context. Now, these Greeks had heard about him. And, and you, you wonder that about that perhaps. But uh, first of all, we learn that these Greeks were among those going up to worship at the feast. So these are Greeks who would have been proselytes. They would have been Greeks who, uh, uncircumcised still it would seem, but they had become believers. They had become convinced that the God of the Jews was the creator of the world, that there was no other God, that all the gods of the Romans and the Greeks, this, this pantheon of so many gods, they were all fakes. They weren't the real deal, and they were as ungodly gods as men in this world. They were convinced that the God who gave the Ten Commandments is the God who created the world, is the God who gives us life and breath and all things. And then these Greeks, who are now worshipers of Jehovah, of the true and living God, they hear of this man Jesus. And perhaps they had read the scrolls of Isaiah, perhaps they had read and, or heard of those prophecies but they had also heard, like Cornelius, you remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 10 to the household of Cornelius, you have heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good. Now, if that news reached Cornelius, that news reached these Greeks who were here in Jerusalem. They had heard of Jesus. They were worshipers of the true God. And they had heard of Jesus. And so, as he comes now, and the, the town is abuzz with the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth is here, they see one of his disciples. As we read earlier, uh, the servant girl recognized that Peter was one of his disciples by his speech. Well, they saw this group of disciples that entered the, the city with Jesus. And so they recognized this man, Philip, as one of them. Now, why Philip? Why not one of the others? I don't know. Uh, perhaps it was just that they bumped into him in the crowd and they recognized him. That's evident. They recognized that he was one of the disciples and they came to him and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, obviously, that's not just setting eyes on him because the whole crowd could set their eyes on him as he entered Jerusalem. It was not just seeing what he looked like, what kind of clothes he wore. When they say, we want to see Jesus, it's evident they want to interview him. They want to meet him. They want to talk to him. They want to hear from him. They want to meet 
Jesus. That's a good thing. We want to meet Jesus. We want to talk to Jesus. We want to hear from Jesus. Much more than us talking to him, we want him to talk to us. We want him to tell us all those things that we need to know. We want him to tell us about sin and righteousness and judgment. We want him to tell us about how we can be saved from this present evil age. We want him to tell us about his mission and why he came. We want to see Jesus. And so what does Philip do? That is the request. We want to see Jesus. And so Philip, I don't know, these guys are Greeks. I remember Jesus saying they didn't come except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What do we do with these Greeks? And so he's puzzling this over and he can't perhaps figure it out. And so he says, oh, I know, I'll ask Andrew. Andrew will know. And so he goes to his brother, Andrew, and so finds Andrew. And Andrew, these Greeks want to talk to Jesus. What do we do? Now, maybe I'm putting words in their mouths, but that seems to me to be the case. He goes to find Andrew and... Uh, then Andrew says, I don't know, <laughs> I decay. Uh, you know, you can answer any question. That's what my teacher in the academy told me. I can answer any question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Let's ask Jesus. Well, let's go to Jesus with this. So that's, that's pretty simple, isn't it? You know, they want to see Jesus. So you ask Jesus, would you entertain these Greeks? Now, it's interesting, jumping ahead a little bit, we never find out <laughs> what happened, whether they met Jesus. I assume they did, but um, that was the inquiry, this quest. Uh, it's, it's an interesting contrast, again, with the Pharisees in the previous verse. They're upset. Why does anybody want to see Jesus? Why is the world going after him? Here, the world is exemplified. In the persons of these Greeks, they didn't know that was going to happen, but that's the very next thing we read. God knew it was going to happen. These Greeks are seeking Jesus. The Pharisees weren't seeking him. They wanted to kill him. If they were seeking him, they were seeking to kill him. Now, let's just pause before we go on to our second point, the, the response of Jesus. Let me ask you of your response. Which category do you fit in tonight? Are you with these Greeks? We want to see Jesus. We want to hear from him. We want to know him. Are you with the Pharisees? We want to kill him. You know, in this wicked world, there are a lot of people in that category. There are some in the category of, I don't care about Jesus. But you know what really the case is? They're in the category with the Pharisees. Because Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Which is it for you? Are you here to seek Jesus? Are you here? Well, you know, I'm glad you're here. Even if you were brought by your, fa your parents or friends or whatever brought you here. I'm glad you're here. <sighs> but as I preach tonight, look out on faces, young and old. I want you to seek Jesus. Because it's the best thing you will ever do in your whole life. Because he said, if you seek, you'll find. If you seek with your whole heart. It's not hard to find. He's not far from any one of us. Seek him. Seek him tonight. Don't let another sun set. It's about gone. Don't let another night pass. 
that you don't find the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there was their quest. We want to see Jesus. Now, Jesus responds. And we would think that the very next verse, verse 23, would be Jesus answered them saying, okay, bring him in. Wouldn't you expect that? I mean, I, I personally, this is perhaps my conjecture, my own personal opinion, which is, uh, as my grandfather used to say, that with a dime will buy you a cup of coffee. It takes $5 these days, but back in my grandfather's day, a dime would do it. Now, my, in other words, my opinion's worthless. <laughs> but still, I think Jesus met with them because they wanted to see him. And his answer gives us the clue as to what he, how he would respond to these Greeks. What's his answer? We have the Savior's surprising conclusion or response. Look at how he responds to this request of certain Greeks. And Jesus answered them saying, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You say, does that answer their request? They're seeking Jesus. Oh, okay, good. The hour's come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Is there a connection between these two things? Of course there is. The Lord Jesus is not one just to, you know, answer way off, off the mark. His answer is directly on the mark. When Greeks come to seek Jesus, Jesus concludes, this is the hour. This is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. The connection is this. Jesus knows where he's bound. Jesus knows that he is bound for the cross. Jesus knows it's right around the corner as he enters Jerusalem in this triumphal entry. When the palm branches are laid down and he comes in on the donkey, he knows that his days are numbered. He knows the hours are numbered. He knows, in fact, that the hour has come. For him to be glorified. How is he going to be glorified? He's going to be glorified in the cross. He's going to be glorified in the cross and by so dying and suffering and rising and reigning and conquering sin and death, he's going to bring many sons to glory. As he said back in chapter 10, verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And here are these Greeks knocking at his door. I have other sheep, he had said, and here they are. Here are these other sheep, not of the Jewish fold. I must bring them, and here they are. He's thinking perhaps of prophecies such as Isaiah 53, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So these Greeks come and he says, ah, this is it. Other sheep I have. He had said that those would come from east and west and north and south to sit in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here they are. This is it. The time has come. My father is fulfilling his promise that he will save a multitude even through my death. And you see the connection with the cross. You, you might say, well, uh, you, you said, Lord, this is the hour for me to be glorified. I think it's the hour of darkness. How do you see glory in a cross? 
Do you see glory in a cross? The Christian symbol par excellence, the cross. The cross of shame. The cursed death. It's the cross which shows God's glory. Here is a God who is too pure to behold iniquity, too pure of eye to look on it with favor. And here's a God in his mercy who loves sinners and wants to save sinners. And he has determined in his eternal purpose he's going to save sinners. A holy God, a gracious God. How does mercy and justice come together? How do they meet? How do they kiss? They kiss at the cross of Jesus Christ. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Victory is gained at the cross. That's God's glory. His attributes shine forth. Where do you see God's justice? His hatred of sin. You want to view sin's guilt correctly? Look at the cross. How can you see God's love displayed? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Justice, mercy, God's glory at the cross. Now is the hour for Christ to be glorified. And then he illustrates this in verse 24 with a paradox. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So you have a grain of wheat. So you're going to grind it up, make flour, and you're going to bake it. How much bread are you going to get out of a grain of wheat? It's not going to feed you very long. It's not even going to satisfy a little corner of your stomach. But you put that grain of wheat in the ground and it dies and it grows. And that whole wheat plant, the stalk, and I never counted. I've seen wheat on the stalk. How many wheat grains come out of one wheat stalk? A lot of them. Maybe not enough for a loaf of bread, but you take that one grain of wheat, it's multiplied. It bears much fruit. What is Jesus talking about with this analogy, this parable, the grain of wheat? He's talking about himself. He's going to die and he's going to be buried and he's going to bring many sons to glory. He will see the result of his suffering. He'll be satisfied. Much fruit. Jesus is that grain of wheat. And we... Brethren, are the fruit. Bears much fruit to the glory of his Father. Look at this. One grain of wheat. You can't even count the fruit. A multitude no man can number are the fruit of this one grain of wheat. And so... Jesus, when he sees these Greeks or hears of them coming, and I suspect that when Philip 
And Andrew come to Jesus and say, Jesus, Master, there's some Greeks who want to talk to you. I suspect that there's this group of Greeks right behind them as they come up to, uh, to where Jesus is. And they're kind of saying, okay, you know, they're kind of peeking over the shoulder of uh, Philip and Andrew. Or is what, what's going to happen? And they hear Jesus say that, you know, this is the answer. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Now is the hour. Now I'm going to bear much fruit because here are these Greeks, as it were, first fruits of those promised to me. And so this is what the father had promised to him in Isaiah 49, verse 6. One of my favorite verses in the whole book of Isaiah. It's too small a thing, the father said to his son, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. That's great enough to save these lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the father promised him, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so it is. We have here tonight people from a lot of different nations, even in this room, and around the globe. There are churches worshiping the Lamb, saved from sin and judgment. We are the fruit. Jesus saw it. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But he doesn't end there. And there's a third part to this passage. And he continues after he has made these conclusions about what these Greeks coming, uh, what that means for him. He then says something for the Greeks and for all of his disciples, for us here as well. He says, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so I would call this the demands and the rewards of Christ's service. You see, if, if Jesus is going to save somebody, including these Greeks, including us, what does that mean? Well, his death accomplishes redemption. For all who are promised to him, for all that the Father gave to him, they will come to him and they will be redeemed. They will be pardoned. They will be accepted with God. But, you know, it's not just like a ticket to heaven. As some, sadly, as some preach, you believe in Jesus and you got a ticket to heaven and you got fire insurance from hell. And that's all you get. It's much more than that. Because you see, if you follow Jesus, you say, I trust in this Jesus. I want to be delivered from my sin. It means that you're going to have something happen in your life. He who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's said in different terms here in John chapter 12. Jesus says, you love your life Let's just parse that. You love your soul, literally. You love your, your soul. What, what does that mean? Well, I think life is a good translation here. That word soul has various nuances. But here he's talking about you love yourself, basically. You love your life in this world. You love your own pleasure. You're attached to pleasure, to riches, to ease, to things, to money, to parties, to job, to families, to sexual gratification, whatever you name it. 
you love your life here in this world, guess what? You demand, I've got to have my treats, I've got to have my cookies, I've got to have my fun. You love your life in this world, guess what? You lose it. That's what he says. He loves his life, himself, his own soul. He loves what he wants, and he's going to get it no matter what you say. You lose it. The way that seems right to man is a, the way of death. The treasures on earth, right? You're going to store up your treasure. I got to have my things. I got to have it my way. Right? You get your treasure. And what does Jesus say? What does the Bible say? Treasures on earth, money, goods, cars, they rust, they decay. Gold doesn't rust. <laughs> There's something else for gold. It gets stolen. <laughs> Money gets stolen, or you lose it in the stock market, or it dwindles away, or you spend it on things, and then you got your credit card debt. <laughs> things are not going to satisfy you. You want that, you love that, you seek that, you live for that, you lose it. That's, what, that's clear. And that's experience. You live for pleasure. You live for sexual gratification? What is it? You end up miserable. Listen to me, young people. That's not what the world tells you. That's not what the devil lies to you. He says, you try this, you do this, and you'll have the best life possible. Look around you. Misery. The way of the transgressor is hard. There's a way that seems right to a man. And in this life, ultimately it's misery, but in the world, it's death, eternal death. He who loves his life loses it. But, and here's the disciple, he who hates his life in this world. In other words, it's not that he says, oh, I'm going to kill myself, I hate myself. It's not what he's talking about. He's saying, in comparison with the life to come, in comparison with serving Christ, your life doesn't, it's not really the big deal. It's not the priority. It's not what you're after. He who hates his life, it's not your number one. You hate your life, you put it in its proper place, in comparison with Christ and his service and his kingdom. And his mercy and his grace and his love and his companionship, his fellowship, his communion. You see, the world, here from the world we turn, Jesus, to seek. <laughs> what we sang is what the passage is about. We turn from the world, Jesus, to seek. And so to be his disciple is to seek first the kingdom to prefer eternal life to temporal life, to prefer the unseen reality to the seen reality, to prefer even hardship with the people of God to the passing pleasures of sin. Suffer now, glory hereafter. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I was just reading this afternoon the biography of some 
Ethiopian Christian pastors and missionaries, native Ethiopians, were thrown in jail in chains because they preached Christ. And they sang, we will follow him. To the death, we will follow him. Through hardship, we will follow him. The refrain was, we will follow him. With our chains clanking, marching off to prison, we will follow him. They embodied what this text was talking about. <laughs> they didn't love their life. Here, they loved Christ and his service. And what are the rewards of following him through thick or thin? Not just when it's easy, not just when, as Bunyan said, religion goes in its silver slippers, but in hardship, in difficulty, in persecution, following him. What's the reward? Well, look at the text. If anyone hates his life in this world, first of all, it says he keeps it to life eternal, eternal life. So you say, okay, my priority is Jesus. What do you get? You say, what's in it for me? Eternal life. Of course, the opposite again. You reject Christ, eternal death. Damnation, hell, to, to be plain. But you take Christ and all that comes with him. The world hated him. He's gonna hate you. It's going to hate you. But you take him. You say, life, life, eternal life. Like the pilgrim in Christian, the Christian in pilgrim's progress. Covering his ears, running on. Life, life, eternal life. But furthermore, look at it again. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. The second reward is just to be with Jesus. What are these Greeks seeking? We want to see Jesus. Okay, you follow Jesus, guess what? You get to be with Jesus forever. And if anybody says... So what? You don't know Jesus. <laughs> if you knew him, you would say, that's the icing on the cake. That's the best part of it all. There will my servant be also. To be with Jesus. Sirs, we would see Jesus. Okay, you can see him forever. But then there's more. The Father will honor him. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, that's amazing. I don't know if that strikes you as amazing, but, but it is. Because we're aware that our service is full of holes. <laughs> I mean, you don't even have to get out a magnifying glass, much less a microscope. And it's got glaring defects. The best of men is a man at best. The best of Christians has remaining sin. The best of pastors has clay feet. <sighs> Would that we could serve him better? Would that we were always faithful, always true? Never slipped. <sighs> but you know what? You serve him. This is what it says. My father will honor him. Father, you got the wrong guy. No, you don't. 
you stuck with me? Is it thick or thin? Oh yeah, Peter, you had a little wavering there. But Jesus prayed for him that his faith would fail not. And he would recover. Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me? Why three times? To make up, to counteract, to balance. Peter, you're restored. My father will honor him. And in spite of all our failings, brethren, is this not amazing? But it's true. What do you hear with all the failures of your service when you come to the last day? If you've been not perfect, but faithful. Not perfectly faithful, but really faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. He said, I don't deserve it. No, we don't. It's grace. It's all of grace. <laughs> but it's a gracious reward. So, as we wrap up, what does this have to say to us tonight? Well, we're here with this table before us, table set, this bread and a cup. And we're here to seek Jesus. You know, we're not going to get fat eating a little morsel of bread and drinking a little bit of the fruit of the vine. It's not going to nourish our bodies much. But as we take these elements and as we meditate on our Savior, isn't it something that strengthens your soul? What a Savior. Hallelujah. He did this for me. His body broken for my sake. His blood shed for me. I want to see Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, minister to us tonight as they knew him on the road to Emmaus and recognized him in the breaking of bread. May he come, as it were, and minister to us as we break the bread and drink the cup. But you know, brethren, if we're to see him, if we're to be with him, then we must follow in his steps. As we heard this morning, it's interesting how God weaves together the messages unplanned by us. But here we see the same thing kind of emphasized. That if we're going to follow him, yeah, there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a price to pay. The world's not going to love you. The world's not going to pat you on the back and say, oh, you're a good Christian. They'll say other things about you because you're a Christian. Some to your face, some behind your back. Yes. Will you faithfully follow all the same? Follow his steps. Don't love this world. Don't let it grab your heart. Whether it's things or money or pleasure, whatever immorality, whatever things would grab your heart, choke out the weed, get rid of them. Follow Jesus. Keep on following Jesus. He who loves his life loses it. Don't love. I mean, really, how much is there to love? Okay, yes, we love our families. We love the good things God gives us. That's not bad. That's not wrong. But we love him much more. Love him much more. 
follow his steps. Press on, brethren. Don't be dragged aside. Don't let it happen. Keep seeking Jesus. Because we have a sure reward. Stop your ears. Run on. Don't be distracted, right hand or left hand. Run on. When I was a kid, we sang this chorus. I've decided to follow Jesus. And yeah, I know it's um, perhaps a bit theologically imprecise. But one of the, the lines in that chorus was, Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though it's hard, still follow. Of course, you know that if you follow him, it's because he grabbed hold of you and drew you to himself. We acknowledge that. But still, follow him with determination. Follow him. Lift up your eyes, because there he is at the gate of glory. If you can just imagine, picture in your mind's eye, not, not an image, not, not, not an idol. There's your Savior. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Where I am, there my servant will be also. Yes, Lord, I want to be there. Follow. But as we close, I want to say this to our friends here tonight. You know, Jesus came and he conquered sin and death. Yeah, it looks like it looks pretty bleak here in the account that we read earlier, the account here, uh, Jesus going to the cross. He knew it. Dark day. But he conquered. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and he conquered death and he conquered hell and he conquered Satan himself. Conquered. And he can save you by his death. Seek Jesus. You say, but, but I'm not done with the world yet. What do you want? You must be honest. You think you're going to be satisfied with stuff? Sinful pleasure? It's going to leave you with illness, with aches and heartaches. Turn. Turn from the world and seek the Lord Jesus. Seek until you find him. Because he's not far from any one of you. That's his promise. May it be that tonight, oh, tonight, could tonight be the night that you meet the Lord Jesus Christ? Why not? Why not? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we close this part of the service, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these Greeks. We thank you for what it signified that Jesus is saving a people from all over the world. And these Greeks were the first fruits, the down payment, the indication that this is real. It's still happening today. May it happen here that young and old sinners, those who don't know him yet, would come and seek him and find him. And for your people, yes, we're determined to follow. We are weak, though. We are ensnared by many things. There are those sins that so easily entangle us and hinder us as we run the race. 
May we be all the more determined as we take the bread and drink the cup that we're going to follow the Lord Jesus. We're going to be his servants. We're not going to love this world or the things in the world. But rather, we will set our hearts on the Savior who loved us and cleansed us with his blood. Hear us, we pray in his precious name. Amen.